Welcome to the Democracy Group, a network of podcasts about democracy, civic engagement, and civil discourse. In this feed, you will find a sampling of episodes from our podcast and the Democracy Group, as well as recordings from our events. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please visit democracygroup.org to find more like this. Now let's get to our featured episode. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Welcome to Democracy Matters, the podcast of the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement at James Madison University. I'm your co-host, Kara ong I'm Sarah Akers, the Woodson Martin Democracy Fellow for the school year. I'm Jacqueline Dobrin, Communications Specialist at JMU Civic. I'm Stephen Paulson. I'm a professor of sociology and anthropology here at James Madison University. Stephen, thank you so much for joining us on Democracy Matters um, to discuss your new book, Racism on Campus, a visual history of prominent Virginia colleges and Howard University um, that is hot off the presses Mm -hmm. from Rutledge Press. I wonder if you can share what inspired your systemic exploration of your books as a means for capturing institutional norms and changes associated with race relations at universities? Uh, well, you know, what, at the time, uh, I was teaching the uh, research methods class uh, in, in the sociology department. And uh, I'm, I'm always looking for something that's relevant to what's going on at the time. And it was either during or just before that the, the Northam scandal had taken place. And um, I think most Virginians will remember that, you know, there was a picture of Governor Northam's Eastern Medical School yearbook that showed a man in blackface and another man dressed as a Ku Klux Klan. And this precipitated a really, um, well, it was, there was a scandal and it precipitated this investigation into yearbooks by a lot of the media and being a sociologist, uh, I found this interesting, but I thought everyone was doing it wrong, you know, that I, I wanted to kind of organize it and uh, look at the yearbooks from beginning to end. And and then mostly I started thinking about yearbooks as being really perfect um, kind of historical documents. And so in this class, in order to get my students to think about how, um, you know, research methods are useful, I said, well, let's take a look at some yearbooks and let's look at Virginia yearbooks because, you know, we're we're in the state. And um, we came up with a process for coding yearbooks. We came up with a code book. And I sent my um, 20-something students out into the world. Um, and again, it was really easy to do because most of these yearbooks have been digitalized. And um, it takes about an hour f- to go through one yearbook. And they, um, you know, they made a pretty good dent in terms of gathering content. But then you know, what we found was extraordinary mm. uh, in terms of the, particularly during the early periods. And so I just kept um, doing it afterwards. And I did have a few students stick with me. Um, and we we've, we've, um, did publish an article in Context that looked at some school book uh, photos. I wonder if now you could share, um, what does the systemic study of yearbook images reveal about the role of institutions of higher education in ordering race relations and perpetuating racism not only on campus but in wider society yeah well i mean the way i i tend to think of these yearbooks is that they are you know they're annual editions designed to show people what's important in these institutions they're 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 perfect little documents for that and then what's also nice about them is the yearbook editors have organized the content to, to tell you what's important you know who's doing what to whom and what how the structure of the university is organized in terms of labor and and what rituals are important. And, um, you know, we're having a lot of discussions right now about systemic racism, institutional racism. And, th- and this is, a, this is a, a, a piece of work that's tied to Bonilla Silva's concept of institutional racism. And his definition is basically, you know, when racism or the race structure basically affects the way people live their lives and is reinforced by a broader culture you know, irrespective of how you feel about people of other races, this is this is real, and it's structural. And um, uh, that's the way I approached the study of these yearbooks. And in terms of the early period of the yearbook content, it's clear that these are sites of white privilege. That, you know, it, it, it ex- explicitly so. These were places designed to basically mostly train men, elite men, 
terms of how to wield financial power in the state of Virginia. And you see that in the yearbooks. I mean, it's undeniable. And what's what's even more unnerving, I, I think, and, uh, and I, I think we're going to talk about this a little bit more, is the um, preoccupation with ordering race in terms of a hierarchy where it's expressly stated that white people are on top mm. and the role of black staff is to serve people. And uh, even more so, particularly during periods when um, violence became more common, say after the screening of a film like The Birth of the, uh, Birth of the Nation, you, you see a kind of uptick in, in, in violent caricature that's depicting black men and women having violence acted upon them. And to me, um, yeah, it just makes clear exactly what these institutions were all about at the time. So you examined all of the colleges and universities in Virginia. I, d I didn't examine all oh. of them. There, there are a few that I did not get to. There's, there's I believe, 10 total. And um, I chose the colleges to kind of represent the diversity of colleges that existed at the time. And I'll, I think I can name them. There's James Madison University, Washington and Lee, uh, Hamden, Sydney, Longwood, Virginia Tech, George Mason, University of Richmond, and the Medical College of Virginia, which is now VCU. Mm -hmm. Oh, and Old Dominion University. Um, so you've got the kind of prominent um, national colleges like UVA, you've got really prominent small liberal arts schools like Washington and Lee, and then you've got the kind of, you've got two schools, Longwood and James Madison University that are were oriented towards women's. Um, and I did want to do the HBCUs as well, but the, the HBCUs in Virginia didn't, haven't, they hadn't digitalized their yearbook um, content yet, so. And so you compared those Virginia schools with Howard University. Yeah, Howard University, and I, 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 I have to tell you, I tried to, I, I submitted the book and I, I, I did have this throwaway line where I said, yeah, I tried to get to the Virginia HBCUs, but none of the yearbooks were digitalized. And someone in, in, during the course of review said, well, you gotta, you gotta include those. <laughs> you gotta get, you gotta find an HBCU somewhere. And it was one of those moments where I was like, okay, well, they're definitely right about this, but this is gonna cause a lot more work. And, um, I, but I did find, I found Howard University really did have a extraordinarily good and complete um, 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 digitalization of their yearbooks, and it was ideal in the end. It was perfect because Howard University is the you know the prominent HBCU in, in the nation, and it was I think it made the study much much better. So in the end, I was I was more than happy to go through those yearbooks, and not the least of which because the the Virginia the content in the Virginia yearbooks was often extraordinarily um, depressing, <laughs> and the Howard yearbook content is um, uplifting. It really was a kind of pleasure to kind of end the study with a, at least, um, you know, an institution that was doing extraordinary good. Are there any people that you came across in your studies that stood out to you, good or bad? I, I did not know anything about Thomas Page Nelson. Thomas Nelson Page. Until I started reading these yearbooks. And one of the, year, when the yearbook that was dedicated to him, it says, oh, he's had some very wise statements about race relations. And so I was like, oh, I should track this person down and figure out what these <laughs> why statements were. And so it turns out he did write this book called, um, I'm going to find it here, The Negro, The Southerner's Program, The Southerner's Problem. And um, Thomas Nelson Page is also a graduate of WNL. And he received his honorary doctorate from WNL. So this is a man, this is, he is the exemplary alumni for UVA during this period. And one of the themes in the yearbooks at the time was basically this reversion to barbarism. You know, that absent kindly white masters in the Civil War, blacks were no longer orderly. And I did not understand that until I actually read Thomas Page Nelson's book, <laughs> that this is the best way to kind of understand this caricature. And so I'm just going to read this quote from him from the Negro, the Southerners, the, the, the Southerners problem. And, it, and, and, it, and this is, again, a direct quote. Universally, 
They will tell you that while the old-time Negroes were industrious, saving, and were not misled, well-behaved, kindly, respectful, and self-respecting, and while the remnant of them who still remain generally have these characteristics, the new issue, for the most part, are lazy, thriftless, intemperate, insult, insolent, dishonest, and without the most rudimentary elements of morality. They, further, uh, they unite further in the opinion that the education, such as they receive in the public schools, so far from appearing to uplift them, appears to be without any appreciable beneficial effect upon their morals or their standing as citizens. But more than this, universally they report a general depravity, depravity and retrogression of the Negroes at large in sections in which they are left by themselves, closely resembling the reversion to barbarism. And again, this is to me was, uh, this, this is a man who well, later on, he was uh, Woodrow Wilson's uh, ambassador to Italy. He's a prominent writer at the time. He's basically known for establishing the quote unquote plantation tales genre. His families basically are the Nelson families and the Page families. So if you uh, live in Page County or Nelson County, his, his family includes signers of the Declaration of Independence, past governors. And so this is the normative idea, you know, that existed um, at the time. And it really does explain the content of the UVA yearbooks. And then um, I was like, well, okay, well, there's a, an alumni um, how much of it is actually in the curriculum? And then I ran into Brandon Berenger. Mm. And so Brandon Berenger is this, and I'm going to read a direct quote from him as well. He's this um, former UVA graduate. He later returned to the university as a professor. He was the chairman of the faculty, which is kind of the equivalent of the dean from 1985 until 1903. And this is when the first hospital was being built. And there used to be a Berenger wing of the hospital, which was recently renamed. Uh, for Francis Collin. After he had this role, he was the sixth president of Virginia Tech from 1907 to 1913. And so he actually um, uh, submit, uh, wrote a paper that was delivered at a medical association in, um, I believe it was delivered in Atlanta. And this paper, paper became so popular that it started to get um, submitted all over the South at conferences. And so he wasn't there actually reading the paper. Someone else was doing it for him, but then people would comment on it. And this is what he said, basically, this, this again is a direct quote from this, the, this paper that he wrote. He says, it is claimed that since education has raised up for these people and its own leaders, the problem is solved. And he's talking about basically black education. And I pulled this quote because it's kind of a direct reference to what was going on at Howard University, which also had a hospital mm-hmm. and was training uh, black uh, men and women to be medical professionals. And he, and what he says is, an education that makes leaders at the expense of the lead is a failure. Every Negro doctor, Negro lawyer, Negro teacher, and other leader in excess of the immediate needs of his own people is an antisocial product, a social menace. Mm. Neither the North, neither in the North, the South, the East, or the West can such a professional make a living at his calling through white patronage. And to give him the ambition and capacity and then blast this opportunity through caste prejudice and racial instinct is to quote unquote, commit a crime against nature. Nature made the white man and the black. It made the natural and inalterable prejudice between the two races and hence the crime lies at the door of him who knowingly attempts the impossible. And then later on, I mean, he goes on to basically say, to condemn what um, at the time was the more popular position of Booker T. Washington says even industrial education is really not appropriate for black men and women. Uh, He says, this is a mistake. Any education will be used by the Negro politically for politics once successful is now instinctive form of warfare. The question then plainly put is simply this, shall we having with great effort gotten rid of the Negro as political menace deliberately proceed to equip the Negro in his future as an economic menace. Shall we, knowing this primitive racial needs, arm him and pit him against the poor white of the South? And, and again, this is the, for me, more than anything during the, the, when I was looking at the UVA yearbooks during that period, these two men made that material knowable for me in terms of the motivations behind it, particularly this reversion to barbarism theme. Mm-hmm. And so I thought I would put those quotes out there. <laughs> and these are not these are these are prominent men right. so, you know 
they, they don't strike me though as being so much different than Thomas Jefferson's notes on the state of Virginia. They're, they're not different so, at all. Yeah. And, and Jefferson being the founder of the University of Virginia yeah. and yeah. the writer of the Declaration of Independence yeah. and someone who also enslaved his own children. Yeah. Well, there is this, again, there's this woman at UVA, P. Preston Reynolds, who basically, uh, I think in some articles, makes that point. And if you think about it with, the, with, the, with respect to Howard University, I mean, Howard, we didn't talk about the founding, but it was named after... Um, the uh, general that actually led the Freedmen's Bureau. And it was established explicitly as a project of uplift and for freed, um, well, for anyone that wanted to attend, but primarily for freed black slaves. And so the project was always different. It was always motivated by uh, something distinct. And, and, and you can see, you know, in the fault line, you know, in the lines through history that, you know, the impact that Howard had versus the resistance of a place like UVA, I think, is, I think that's that's real, and yeah, and Behringer, Behringer, um, again, I mean UVA. I did not know that UVA had become a center or was a center of eugenics, and not just eugenics in terms of the medical school. I mean eugenics in terms of the biology department, eugenics in terms of, I mean, it just saturated all the curriculum at the university at that time, and so the the two men, you know, uh, I would just get their names inverted, but Nelson Page and um, Behringer are utterly reflective of the dominant ideas of the time. You divide your study into three periods examining campuses in Virginia. In the period before World War II, with comparison to Howard University, during the same period, the period after World War II, and during the Civil Rights period, and then the social movement activism at Howard University and the Virginia colleges, largely from the Civil Rights period to the present. Could you compare the yearbook content between white universities and Howard University before and after the Civil War? Yeah, um, yeah, that's a really stark difference. And so um, I divided up the content for the white universities into these kind of four categories. And, and you know, I will tell you, when we were coding these yearbooks, we weren't just looking at race relations. Our intention was to look at all sorts of different things, gender relations. and But race was by far and away the most prominent theme that we found. And so, you know, the, the, the most common representation of black uh, men and women during this period were in caricature form, uh, usually associated with uh, the tradition of minstrelsy. And I, and I really didn't know anything about minstrelsy and the minstrel tradition until I started this project, but in trying to make sense of these, these caricatures of black men and women, um, you know, the minstrel tr tradition was the obvious place to go. And then there was, in fact, at this time, it was just routine, common, ordinary at all these schools to have minstrel shows take place, often annually. And it was also common to find in yearbook pictures of the, show this, that even choral groups, you know, that weren't engaged in kind of full-scale minstrel productions were, were performing in blackface. So the, so the caricatures um, have all these rhetorical, rhetorical tropes that were common at the time. The idea that uh, black men um, steal chickens, the idea that black men are in uh, trouble with the law, um, they're, uh, the, they show, uh, you know, the traditional kind of mammy figures as well. And then uh, black children um, kind of being um, as, as humorous and, and confounded by modern objects is, 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 is another sort of uh, picture that we found. Um, I was particularly interested in pictures of black staff. I actually wanted to know what people were doing on these colleges. So, you know, black staff is not usually the focus of these yearbooks, but if you're looking really closely, you can you can find out what people were doing. And before the war, it's almost entirely black men who are quite literally um, serving white students in terms of um, uh, if if you're at a, if if you see a picture of a fraternity, for example, the men in the fraternity will be aligned all lined up, and you might see a, a black staff member standing beside them with his hands at his back at the ready, kind of ready to spring into action and um yeah those 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 photos were very common so you know the service work the people maintaining the university the people literally you know, um, constructing the university often almost always were black men and so there's a bunch of those pictures that are shown um and then i tried to just in terms of getting to the idea that race really inundated all of campus life 
um, looked at extracurricular activities. And um, so, for example, Washington, uh, Washington and Lee was the first school, I believe, that enacted the so-called gentleman's agreement. And this was an agreement where uh, in the WNL uh, football team um, made other schools sit their black players when they played them. The first time this happened was actually a game against Rutgers University. And they made Paul Robeson, who later on became this very prominent um, black actor and then activist, um, sit instead of play instead of playing the football game. And so later on in the yearbooks, um, for example, WNL played against this team, Washington and Jefferson, and they tried to get the, the black quarterback for the Washington and Jefferson team to sit, this man, Charlie Pruner. And Washington and Jefferson refused and, and then later on uh, actually went to the uh, Rose Bowl and Charlie Pruner became the, um, the first black man, I think, to play in that game. But the, in the yearbooks, you can see them editorializing, like, you know, how awful this was. Obviously, Washington and Jefferson should have abided by the gentleman's agreement. And then you also, they, to kind of marshal evidence, they would talk about the Richmond Times-Dispatch uh, newspaper and how they editorialized um, on behalf of WNL. And so there's a lot of pictures of extracurricular um, activities, a lot, mostly minstrel shows, but also uh, associated with sports that kind of demonstrate how race saturated the culture of these places. And uh, finally, and I think probably in some ways the most disturbing was the Civil War, um, the lost cause of the South um, symbolism. So at some schools like Washington and Lee, obviously there's a lot of Civil War memorialization associated with, um, with Robert E. Lee himself. And there's this kind of extraordinary mausoleum on campus there that has a statue of Lee, the recumbent Lee, where he's quote unquote shown resting on the battlefield. But, but the effect of the statue is that it's like a sarcophagus. You, you kind of assume that his body is actually in the statue itself. And so for, you know, WNL, you kind of assume that there's going to be this memorialization. But what you find out um, is that this type of um, kind of Lee is great man is, is actually also in a yearbooks like The School Ma'am. Um, which is the JMU uh, yearbook. And so during the 50th anniversary of, say, Lee's um, death, or the 50th anniversary of the Civil War, you see a lot more kind of Civil War iconography associated with Lee as a great man. And then you also see a, a kind of an uptick in um, portrayals of violence, because this is also a period when the Ku Klux Klan was also kind of being accepted as, as, as um, um, ex well, acceptable. And so, you know, after the filming of A Birth of a Nation, again, there was this really provocative imagery in the uh, WNL yearbook, wherein you saw uh, paintings of Ku Klux Klan figures with uh, quotes uh, by prominent um, Southern leaders at the time, uh, basically memorializing what life was like after the Civil War. And of these pictures, there's one um, the most provocative one actually shows a, a black body being hung in the background. But there were other sorts of examples, too. So during this period, uh, the, the um, Ku Klux Klan was represented on the um, clubs, well, it was represented on the page that was introduced in the student clubs in the uh, UVA yearbook. And in Corks and Curls itself, I mean, the, the name of the UVA yearbook is probably a direct um, directly related to the minstrel tradition. Um, it, it seems like there's a, a, a pretty, um, well, a lot of people assume that the corks and curls, the burnt, the burnt cork was actually how people um, blacken their faces. And then the curls is a reference to the, again, the minstrel tradition that people um, wore during this period. So yeah, the pre-Civil, the pre-World War II um, uh, pictures and text for that matter, uh, really makes clear how central race and ordering race uh, was to these institutions. And, and, and quite frankly, I was um, surprised by how central this was at the time. And um, so Howard University, yeah, Howard University is just, it's, it's just different in every way. I mean, Howard University, to my way of thinking, actually looks much more like a modern university. And so, for example, the Howard motto truth through service is the way I, I, I interpret it. And so service has always been basically a part of the Howard culture. 
And it was pretty explicit that the service was geared towards and supposed to, um, well, training Howard uh, University students was a means through which you were going to engage in black uplift in terms of the community. So this theme of black uplift being um, uh, there for your community, working consistently to uh, affect positive changes just inundates everything about the Howard University yearbooks. And um, what, uh, in terms of contrasting the content, uh, what tended to really jump out at me in terms of the Howard University yearbooks was um, they're, they're constantly talking about uh, law in these yearbooks. And there was a law school at Howard University, and this, this law school was actually training um, both men and women at the time. But the discourse is pretty straightforward. It's that, you know, there's this national law, and right now we have mob rule. There's, there's lawlessness in certain places, and this is negatively impacting the black community. And our obligation and our charge is basically to make sure that that law establishes order. And one of the reasons why, you know, for example, it's important to train black lawyers is so, so we can make this case. And you, you compare this to what was going on at the time in terms of uh, the University of Virginia and um, in Virginia itself. I mean, while, the, while that discourse is taking place at Howard University, you've got prominent faculty and alumni at a place like UVA kind of agitating for the Racial Integrity Act, which was passed in 1924, which established the quote unquote so-called one drop rule. And so the interpretations of law and, and really just the, the, the interpretations of, of what was going on in the United States at the, at the time, Howard University academics, Howard University students are basically just the prescriptions and the analysis are just right. And, and the University of Virginia yearbooks and the, the yearbooks associated with these white schools are just fantastical. They're, 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 they're not designed to, to tell the truth. They're, they're, they're designed to order you know, a racial hierarchy. Just as we are, as, as you were describing the, the gentleman, the gentleman's agreement with regards mm -hmm. to football and, you know, black players not being allowed to play, it really struck me as we're in this moment where Colin Kaepernick continues to be punished, mm -hmm. you know, for taking a knee to point out the injustices. Um, and, you know, we, that we really haven't come that far. Um, mm -hmm you know, it, it, in, in that amount of, in a hundred years. Yeah, no, I mean, this is the thing about it is, you know, the past informs the present, uh, whether it's the institutional demographics or something like that, where someone's just told to, you know, your job is to shut up and play or, you know, not to make a political statement. And uh, I, d I tend to be someone to think things have changed, obviously, for the better over the period of time. And I, I think when you see the, the grotesque for lack of a better word, nature of a lot of this caricature, particularly the violent caricature, it's hard to um, not see some progress, but you can still see clearly in day-to-day -day life on campuses and in society, the, the, the remnants of these ideas that you know, kind of manifest themselves. And the, the Kaepernick example is a good one. You also mentioned um, from this first period that you examine um, that black men being labor. Mm -hmm. And I wonder to what extent um, we can, you know, one, I think, what does that say about the ordering? <laughs> um, if you could talk a little bit more about the ordering and then also particu particularly, you know, as a uh, as someone who received both their master's and PhD from UVA, mm -hmm. um, you know, I there was very little discussion for a long time about the role of, uh, of enslaved labor in building the university. Right. So I'm wondering how that comes out as well, because it, it's not just that it's labor, <laughs> but it's mm -hmm. unpaid labor, <laughs> it's right. enslaved labor. Um, and, and so how does that yeah. come out in these images? Yeah, well, the best, I mean, UVA has this extraordinary example where there were two formerly enslaved laborers who are talked about in the early yearbook. Um, I, I, I think almost immediately, like two years afterwards, and there's um, one of them is Henry Martin, and the other one is um, someone who's usually referred to as um, Uncle Pete or Uncle Peter and sometimes Buzzard Pete. His name is actually Peter Briggs. And these were formerly enslaved laborers. These are people who actually worked at the university before the Civil War. 
and then were employed by the university afterwards. In the case of Henry Martin, he appears in the yearbook over the course of 30 years, as does Peter Briggs. And the juxtaposition between those two men is extraordinary because now Henry Martin is considered to be the ideal laborer. He's considered to be the ideal black man. And he's actually, uh, there, there are prominent um, white authors, prominent people in the university who talk about Henry Martin with affection. But when they talk about Henry Martin with affection, what they say is he always votes the Democratic Party, not the Republican Party. He does not care for education. He knows that his role is to be an ideal servant. And, and they will say, and again, we don't know what Henry Martin actually believed because his feelings and attributions and you know, are almost always attributed to him, sometimes in dramatized forms by white people. So you know, my guess is Henry Martin probably had more complex feelings about what was going on. But when he is, when he is talked about by the white men at the university, this is this is how he's characterized. Peter Briggs plays like a completely, he's a different archetype. He's the person that um, laughs and scrapes about and doesn't, uh, is, is kind of uh, characterized as, um, as um, um, entertainment, really. And, and sometimes there are these fantastical renderings in which Martin and Briggs are talking with one another. Now, maybe they talked with one another, maybe they didn't. These are, these are kind of renderings that were made in the yearbook by white students in which they're kind of characterized as rivals of each other and the way i read that was that well, th these are the these are the archetypes that that white people want to stick the black labor into and that what, what was most unnerving a lot of times is you know again black labor was absolutely foundational to the maintenance of these places and at times i mean the students um the backhand sort of um well, not even backhand. I mean, sometimes the direct kind of insult to to people that were laboring on behalf of students was was unnerving. I mean, there there's a lot of caricature that just basically makes fun of the the black labor that's around these students. And again, the cover of the book actually shows that. There's a picture of a man, uh, and that that is a, a picture from the UVA yearbook where it shows a black man st uh, with an ashtray standing. Uh, beside a white man, uh, man who's seated in this kind of ottoman who's reading a newspaper and then there's pipe smoke uh, kind of above this man and you can see that the black staff is the, the, the person ha uh, holding this ashtray is obviously perturbed he's sitting there holding an ashtray while someone smokes and reads the newspaper and that sort of content was really common in a lot of these in a lot of these um, um, yearbooks but particularly at UVA um, there's a, you know, there's a story in the WNL yearbook where uh, the, the students make fun of a staff member, a black staff member who they characterize as being kind of well-liked, who's thinking about taking a job elsewhere. And they basically, the whole nature of the skit is, well, that not that funny? That he would think about, you know, trying to improve his situation as a janitor, because obviously he's, you know, he's a janitor. And... Um, and yeah, there's there, there's that sort of portrayal of black staff, and then and then there are these portrayals of black staff where you know the, again whenever, a lot of times when the black staff is is um, showcased in your books, it's because they are literally the longest serving members of the university. So there's a, an example in the book of a janitor at the University of Richmond who I think at, at the time had served close to forty years. He was the longest serving member on the University of Richmond staff. And the, the university president apparently annually would always kind of mention the longest serving person. And in this case, he says something like, well, I hope everyone understands and is not offended by the fact that um, this particular individual has been serving for this amount of time. And then later on, it was editorialized in the Richmond paper. Well, this is the sign that everything's okay. When the university uh, president at the University of Richmond is willing to kind of recognize a servitor, I think is the word they use, then, you know, we don't have to worry about the march of progress. Everything's good at the University of Richmond. And the subtext is, is you know, the old ways are the, the best ways. And so you see that over and over and over and over again. And he, as it relates to the portrayal of um, staff.
Now that you've talked about um, how the yearbook content for both types of universities were before the before World War II, I wonder if you could now talk about kind of how they compared the yearbook content from white universities and Howard after World War II and during the civil rights period. Yeah, so I mean, the the I divide the book into post-war and you know post World War II and pre. World War II for just conventional reasons, that tends to be the time when people think, well, there might have been some change after World War II. And for example, in 1948, the um, armed services were um, desegregated by Truman. And, and so it was a convention. And, and, um, and I, didn't, I didn't know if I was going to find any progressive activism at white universities during this period. And, and, and the fact of the matter is I just didn't. I didn't find any white universities that were engaged in the, um, the civil rights movement in a meaningful way. And in fact, the white universities literally became sites of resistance to uh, desegregation. Um, uh, uh, they were places targeted by the NAACP. So, for example, the University of Virginia was forced to desegregate its law school in the Swanson case, Swanson versus the rectors. And that was brought by uh, Thurgood Marshall uh, and the NAACP. These are Thurgood Marshall was Howard trained the NAACP lawyers that uh, were on his team were Howard Trained. The person that applied to the University of Virginia for, to the law school was Howard Trained. And uh, to me, that just summarized the relationship between these places. You had in Howard University and in the yearbooks consistently um, showing you know, activism associated with law, particularly after the uh, Brown versus Board of Education decision. I mean, in the Howard yearbooks, it shows a lawyer sitting at a desk saying, and, and this, the, the subtitle is basically, we're on the front lines, we recognize it, and we're dedicating the yearbook to you. And, um, you know, again, the yearbooks I looked at in terms of the white colleges, uh, the lack of any, really, information about the civil rights period, even when things were happening on these campuses, such as the Swanson case, was really stark. And, and maybe most... Um, telling was the year that both Martin Luther King and uh, Robert Kennedy died, the memorialization in the Howard yearbook was front and center. You, you, you turned a couple pages and it showed full page pictures of both men. You, you did not find that, even for Robert Kennedy, in the, the, um, the, the uh, white college yearbooks. And so, um, the other thing that really so in in terms of um, Howard content uh, during the sit-in movement, for example, which was in the early '60s, and this was a movement that was organized by SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, um, bunch of uh, mostly HBCU students, historically black college and university students, SNCC, um, um, uh, uh, Stokely Carmichael, Howard grad, basically was one of the leaders of SNCC later on. Um, this divinity student at Howard University, who's again in these yearbooks, Lawrence Henry, I mean, he kind of organized Howard students to desegregate scores of lunch counters in Northern Virginia, in uh, Maryland. He basically, there's a, there was an amusement park at Glen Echo that he desegregated. And uh, the Howard yearbooks reflect this, you know, extraordinary level of activism. And then again, when you look at the when you look at the University of Virginia yearbooks or, or the, the yearbooks associated with all the colleges in Virginia, it is really startling how nothing had changed. <laughs> and by not, uh, there there's some some modest changes in terms of black labor, only in the sense that there are more women doing this sort of work. Um, so I have fraternity yearbook pictures pre before the war. I have fraternity yearbooks after the war at these white universities, and you can see it's black staff. And the black staff doesn't change. I mean, there's there's more of them. They're more likely to be women. And these pictures exist in the UVA yearbooks into the 1970s and 80s. I mean, the, you get the impression that... Now, there are some changes during that period in terms of white students beginning to greater appreciate the black staff and kind of confronting the dual labor market. But practically speaking, it was, you know, black men and women supported the universities before the war and they supported these universities afterwards in the exact same positions. And the, and the yearbooks do reflect that. Um, there, there isn't caricature uh, in the post. Well, there is caricature, but there's, it's not caricature to the same extent that it existed before the war, war. And a lot of the caricature that took place before World War II was in the state clubs. Um, 
um, sections of these yearbooks. And those, those clubs actually did go away after World War II. And there's less, um, um, uh, I can't recall seeing any pictures of, for example, the, the Ku Klux Klan in these yearbooks after World War II. So there, there is less violence being directed towards um, black men and women um, in terms of yearbook content. And that, that might all represent um, some modest forms of progress, I suppose. Um, um, and, and I guess the, the last example I'd like to give is that, um, I mean, people might not know this, but um, there are two colleges in this yearbook. Um, there's Longwood College and Hamden-Sydney that are literally at the site of what was the most kind of prominent and important movement in Virginia as it relates to um, um, the Black Civil Rights Movement. Um, and, and in that case, there was ba the case, um, one of the first like all student kind of movements or activism associated with high school was when these, these Prince Edward um, um, County students um, in Farmville walked out of their school in 1951 to you know, uh, object to conditions there. The case they brought was actually folded into the Brown versus Board of Education case. And so the Brown versus Board of Education case essentially told people in Prince Edward County, you've, you've got to desegregate. And again, Farmville and Longwood are two schools that are like in this community. You could, you could not have been at these schools and not have known this was happening. And during this time, um, the decision was made in the Virginia legislature and elsewhere to literally engage in what, what was called massive resistance to school desegregation. And, uh, and, and, and rather than desegregate Prince Edward County, um, the, uh, the, the, the local um, Board of Education just shut the place down, just basically privatized all the schools and made no um, attempt to um, come up with a system of educating black students. So while this was going on, I was really, I was really curious about the yearbook content because it just seemed like, well, you could not ignore this. There has to have been some, and, and really what's remarkable is how much they did ignore it. Mm -hmm. And then so later on, if you do a little bit of digging, you find out, so for example, there was really just one Longwood College professor, um, this, this kind of heroic voice of, um, uh, resistance, if you will. He was actually a form, he was the chairman of the history department. Um, as soon as he started talking out about the uh, program of massive resistance, um, congressmen uh, started calling for him to be fired. Um, they, uh, they, the, he lost his position as the chair of the faculty. I mean, he, there was not an academic community at Longwood College that mobilized on you know on the side of desegregating there was there and and hamden sydney appears to have you know again there's there's rumors that the president at the time was in favor of desegregation but practically speaking so there was for example a time when robert kennedy uh, got involved in this had um helped um fund some of the irregular schools that were being used to um, um educate black students in prince edward county and he actually visited in 1964, after a series of protests that took place, and, and he went to Hamden Sydney College, where he apparently got a really un—he was, you know—he was not greeted warmly. Um, He—he was—he was went into this auditorium and he asked, um, you know, how many people here support the civil rights legislation, and and the way it was reported was that well, there was polite applause, and then when he asked how many people were against it, there was, you know, a, you know, a lot more support. And I think um, that was by and large uh, the way most of these colleges were oriented towards um, the civil rights movement at that time. I mean, there were, UVA might be the exception in that there was a small group of activists there who were directly involved in uh, the black civil rights movement as it relates to the student organizing that took place by SNCC. I mean, like a handful. Or, you know, I could like maybe I could count them on one one or two hands. They seem to have been somewhat active in the '60s, uh, certainly um, as it relates to the anti-war movement. So there were these little pockets on on some campuses where people were starting to kind of push back. But for the most part, there was like complete acquiescence to massive resistance. 
And you know, some of these schools, um, VMI, for example, um, certainly Hamden Sydney, they didn't uh, admit their first uh, black student until after the period of massive resistance in 1968, just to give you an idea of how, how long these schools held out. So it's, a, it's really, it's a, to be honest, it was a sad, sad story. Um, and it wasn't one that I, I, I was hoping uh, that maybe there would be more pockets of resistance at these universities, that there would be more signs that students were engaged in activism during the early civil rights period. Now there is this period of activism in the 1970s that we might talk about. That seems to be when things start to change a little bit, but directly after the civil war, things did not get much better on white campuses. And, 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 and again, they, they literally are the sites with which Howard graduates, people trained at Howard University, lawyers trained at Howard University are working to desegregate. What can we learn from black civil rights activism at Howard and Virginia campuses about advocating for changes to the university curriculum, for changing governing structures to create more student input into campus-wide decision-making, especially as we continue to engage in these struggles now? Well, I think the most um, heroic and maybe uh, exciting example is what the students at Howard University did. I mean, and, and other HBCUs, but, but Howard in particular, I mean, they really were the backbone particularly as it relates to the organizing that was done by SNCC, um, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, it, it, during the, the Black Civil Rights Movement. And, you know, there was, to my way of thinking, one of the things that, and, and I talk about this in my social movements class, is there was actually this coalition of black and white students that did um, organize together during the Freedom Summer campaign in the early 60s. I mean, this is, this is a group of, um, and, and these were not, I, I want to be clear, Southern students, with, except with a small, small, maybe a small number of students at um, the University of Virginia, but mostly white students at elite universities, Ivy League universities, um, um, along with students from HBCUs did go down into Mississippi uh, in 1961, 1962, and tried to, and, and did register people to vote. And that to this day, to, when I think about uh, student activism, I mean, that, that, that's, it's, 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 it's inspiring and they did affect a real change. I mean, this is the, um, the Mississippi Freedom Party, uh, the, the party that um, was organized during that period, I mean, tried to get seated at the National Democratic Convention and, it, and, and made a very public um, 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 example of what was going on in Mississippi and, and forced and basically in this case the Democratic Party to, 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 to reconcile um, the past somewhat with, with, with the future. Um, yeah, I mean the Howard University example is utterly, um, uh, it's, 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 it's extraordinary the number of activists that were created at that school and if you kind of go back to the, again, the organizing principles that, you know, service was embedded in the place and that the and, and the service was again explicitly designed in, in terms of this project of blacked uplift, and you'd have to say they had an extraordinary impact. Um, and 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 it did not hurt. I mean, during one of the organizing themes in terms of um, why they wanted white students basically to kind of get involved in the Freedom Summer campaign is because that brought publicity, and they had very they had a lot of um, debates about that. It was like, do we really want these white students to come here? They tend to monopolize the attention. They tend to become spokesmen. And, you know, the, they said, well, yeah, no, at least people will pay attention. <laughs> you know, if white, if white folk start to um, get involved. And I think those sorts of coalitions can take place nowadays. I think student activism on campuses um, can, can have an impact of if it's sustained over periods of time. And, and I will tell you, I did write this book because I watched all the activism that took place after um, during the Black Lives Matter protest in the in in, in the summer of um, uh, it was 2020, and I was just like, okay, well, I'm I've, I'm doing some research that seems relevant to this question. I'm going to hustle it into. Um, I wasn't planning on writing a book, and so I mean, these sorts of things do inspire people to to um, try and in various ways, you know, make a difference. So uh, I'm hoping that there's going to be a more sustained and um, activism at white universities on these issues. I'd, I'd really like to see some focus on, um, you know, increasing black enrollment at JMU, for example. Um, um, that's something that needs to be done. It's certainly, we've made some modest um, changes as it relates to uh, making the faculty look more like Virginia. But um, you hope, one of the things that you do kind of realize is 
So in the 1970s, uh, UVA was kind of the radical place. It was there, uh, there were a series of protests after the Kent State riots, for example. And at UVA, they actually did have a black student body president, this man, Jim Ro Roebuck. And there were black activists at UVA at that time. And it was one of the one of the few colleges I looked at during that period where you could see in the yearbooks um, this participation. And one of the um, one of the um, demands that they negotiated was that UVA should basically have a 20% black student population. And that's basically reflective of the level of the black population in the state of Virginia. And that has not changed. I mean, the, the black population in Virginia has been about 19 to 20% of the total population. And so in 1970, Jim Roebuck, acting on behalf of the student body, but, but, but you know, the black student body president made this demand. And, um, and that wasn't articulated really at any other white college. And the only reason I think that it was articulated, and I, I can only kind of guess about this, was because there were these black activists on, on the campus at UVA and they, they, they made their concerns known. And so if you look at the, the protest movement that was taking place at say WNL, which a lot of people were surprised by, it was almost, and th this was an anti-Vietnam War movement. There, were, there was no black activism on that campus. There weren't, there weren't black voices. And, as a consequence, while all these changes were taking place at UVA, you don't see the same sort of race consciousness taking place at WNL, in part because there are just no voices there. And so, I mean, I think I think we need a critical mass, you know, of, of voices on campus. I think you know it makes the, what the campus looks like basically is going to, you know, affect the future. And um, but at the same time, I mean, we've got to be careful because, I mean, I think black enrollment at UVA right now, this is 50 years after that demand was articulated, is about 7 or 8% of the UVA student body. So, I mean, it is not, notwithstanding the fact that UVA activists in the 1970s were kind of out in front, when and, and, and there has been increasing um, diversity on UVA's campus um, over time, but just not in terms of the representation representation of of, of um, black students, I mean it's increased, but it's it's fallen, you know, well short of this demand that was articulated now fifty years ago. So, and similar at JMU as well. <laughs> yeah, no, JMU again, um, and again, we've talked a little bit about this. But when I was here, I was I'm a I'm a graduate of the class of eighty eight, eighty nine. My impression was that the black student population was approaching ten percent. Now that, that could be considered kind of a good start if you start, because you know again, white colleges did not really start enrolling black students mm -hmm. until the 1960s. And, and really the enrollment didn't start to pick up, you know, even modestly until the 1970s. So as a student in 1988, if, you know, if you continued on that trajectory, you know, if the black student population continued to increase, you know, I, I graduated a long time ago. <laughs> I graduated, I think, you know, over, um, yeah, it's about 35 years ago now. Um, and if we'd continued on that trajectory, I mean, things would look a lot different now. Um, I think the black student population at JMU right now is about, what, 5 6% of the population? It's under 5 yeah, Under 5%. 5 so, yeah, we've literally gone backwards um, during the period when I was a student here. Now, other groups have increased their presence on, on, on campus um, in, in modest, modest ways, but... Um, yeah, I mean, that's something that we really should confront and talk about and think about. And and I personally would just like a forthright kind of um, plan uh, of redress as it relates to these things. I mean, um, so. Well, you've actually taken us into our, <laughs> our next question, which yeah. is, why is it important for higher education to confront these racist histories? And in what ways can we go about having some of these hard conversations about structural racism and how we might redress them? Yeah. Well, uh, I think I get, in terms of my book, it's really hard not to immediately, because of the pictures, because the content comes from these yearbooks. I mean, you, you cannot, in a good faith way, argue that these were not sites of white privilege. You, you, they, they were set up explicitly for this purpose. <laughs> and the yearbooks make this clear. Um, but worse than that, and particularly in a place like, you know, UVA, is that, you know, and we, and we accept this now as educators. There's this idea that we are kind of um, training people to be leaders in the future. And that was also the case, you know, back during the worst periods of Jim Crow, when UVA was basically a center for the study of eugenics. I mean, they, this, these ideas got out in the world. 
And these ideas were used to, to order race relations in Virginia for a long period of time. Um, these, these were the ideas that were used to establish the Racial Integrity Act in 1924, that, which was supported by UVA graduates. This, these are the reasons why universities in the state of Virginia engaged in massive resistance to desegregation. And I mean, what I would like to see, um, I, I'm all in favor of making the university currently you know, look like the state of Virginia in terms of its compositions of different groups of people, both in terms of faculty and students. But I, I would really like to see a more forthright admission of guilt <laughs> on as it relates to these uh, institutions in terms of the explicit ways they harmed uh, the black community. And then, and then literally outline a program of redress to make these communities, um, well, I mean, engage in some sort of restorative justice, if you will. Um, and, and I don't mind calling that reparation. Um, I mean, there, there was harm done to uh, people. Uh, labor uh, was, black labor was discounted over a long period of time. People were taken advantage of. And, you know, a system in Virginia was established that was, that was in which institutions of higher education were, were, were largely culpable. I mean, they were a part of this. Um, and I, 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 would, I would, I think, kind of examining this history um, with, the, with the intention of redress um, is important. The only place I can kind of see where this is beginning is these two uh, commissions that Teresa Sullivan established. She was the former president of um, UVA. She's also a sociologist. She, she formed two presidential commissions to look at um, the life of the university during the period of slavery, and then later on, look at the university during the period of um, Jim Crow, and I think also the period of massive resistance. Now, those commissions aren't explicitly designed to deal with the, the, the issues of redress. They're just trying to get the institutional history right. Um, I wouldn't mind seeing something similar at JMU, for example, with the, with the specific intent of, of redress, you know, basically placing the institution, what it did, in some sort of context, and then, then having a program of action to, you know, quote unquote, ameliorate the, these past wrongs. And practically speaking, I, I actually think JMU could be, you know, ahead of uh, other places in this because, uh, you know, JMU did harm to people, um, particularly in terms of, for example, if you think about the fact that JMU was training teachers and then sending them out into the world during this period. But the level of harm that JMU did is actually probably far less than the really prominent schools in the state. I mean, JMU didn't, was not around before the Civil War. JMU did not, was not built with enslaved labor so far as I know. It's, it, the, the, the college was established afterwards. But it's not as if the college didn't do harm. And, 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 I, and I, I, would, I wouldn't mind seeing a, a forthright accounting of this harm. Yeah, I, I think as you mentioned earlier, just so we can <laughs> make sure it's linked, but JMU was established as the Lost Cause narrative was on the rise, and so there was oh, absolutely, yeah, you know, there, and and the first literary societies, the um, literary societies, oh yeah, no, that's in the yearbook at JMU, yeah, were no. focused on Robert E. Lee and around the Lost Cause yeah. of the Confederacy. Yeah, no, I have a heart. You know, it's funny that um, the role of John C. Whalen and all that seems to be central and again Meg Mel Rooney would know a lot more about that <laughs> but I've always tried to, I'm always trying to figure out okay how much was how much of that is it seems like he was everywhere mm -hmm. in terms of establishing that that narrative He's, he seems to have been the person that was like yeah we got to make sure that we're paying homage to Fontaine Murray and Jackson and that was him. thank you Dr. Stephen Polson professor of sociology at JMU for joining us today. We asked this question of all of our guests. So what would you do to strengthen democracy? Yeah, well, you know, it's funny. I, right now I have a, got like a very specific thing I would do. And I dedicated the book to, um, you know, John Lewis because he passed away um, while I was writing it. And he got to see some of the Black Lives Matter protests, I think. But there is this bill that I believe has been passed by the House already. It's basically the equivalent of the kind of John Lewis voter Integrity Act. Um, it doesn't look like it's got really good prospects in the Senate, where where it's been stalled uh, for some time. And I and the two Virginia senators, I think, are are supportive of that. But if you're a JMU student or you know from someplace else, you might um, see if your senators um, support that bill. And 
you know, I talked, I think we talked a little bit about HBCUs and the roles they played in terms of the black civil rights movement, which was largely, again, oriented towards, you know, getting the vote. And, mm -hmm. um, and there've been a few other people that have passed away recently too. this guy, Bob uh, Moses, who was actually the leader of SNCC, uh, during the, um, the, uh, freedom summer campaign, uh, just passed away recently as well. So we've got all these extraordinary, you know, leaders that, um, you know, worked to, uh, expand, you know, the enfranchisement and, and voting. And I, I think there's a real risk of that losing that right now. So I, I would just ask that folks be vigilant uh, in terms of making sure that people's right to vote is maintained. Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Democracy Matters. Editing and production was done by Jacqueline Dobrin, JMU Civics Communications Specialist. Randy Bednikus, Director of Digital Marketing at JMU, does the syndication for us. Our theme song is Sometimes It Shines by Pictures of the Floating World. Be sure to follow us on social media. You can tweet your questions and ideas to us at JMU Civic, and we'll address them in a future episode. You can also connect and engage with us on Facebook at JMU Civic. Learn more about the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement at James Madison University on our website at j.mu civic. Until next time. Thank you for listening to this episode from the Democracy Group. If you want more podcasts like this, then visit democracygroup.org. There you will find our events, topics, and a newsletter as well. So head on over to democracygroup.org.